The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Gratitude goes out to you today for listening to Eco Radio KC on 90.1 FM KKFI Kansas City Community Radio. This is a locally made exploration into positive solutions to some of today's ecological challenges for all of us working to create a healthier future for our communities and for the world you live in. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. My name is Darnell. Today on Eco Radio KC, Peter Bikowski joins host Craig Lubo to discuss climate restoration. He will discuss all aspects of climate restoration, what it is, how it works, and why it is so vitally important to the survival of the planet. Peter Bikowski and Carol Douglas have written a book, Climate Restoration, the only future that will sustain the human race, in which they argue that we need to restore the earth to a safe climate, not just slow down our climate emissions, if we want to ensure a livable planet for generations to come. This will require removing a trillion tons of excess CO2 from the atmosphere. The good news is that this task, while enormous and technically challenging, is very feasible. There have been several reports and studies on the effect of climate change on physical and mental health. Are you depressed? Please stay tuned to hear discussions about impacts of climate change on our mental health. We at Eco Radio KC are glad to encourage awareness and protection of our world. Our goal is to ensure our listeners are aware of how we can create a sustainable present or a sustainable future. This will be a great radio hour. Now, our show. Okay, this is Greg Lubo. Thank you for joining us here on Eco Radio. Um, as Darnell indicated, our topic tonight is climate restoration. My guest is Peter Fikowski. He and uh, Carol Douglas wrote a book on climate restoration. And Peter is my guest tonight. He is a physicist and engineer out of MIT. He is also a social innovator, philanthropist, and entrepreneur. He worked for NASA, NASA, and the Fairchild Schlumberger Artificial Intelligence Lab in Palo Alto. Uh, He's also taught at MIT and he has started and founded a few organizations that are focused on climate restoration. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good to be on. I, I love the introduction. <laughs> and let's start with, um, if you'll give us just a little bit more background, tell us what some of the organizations are that you founded. Yeah. Well, so for the for climate restoration, I uh, started out with the Foundation for Climate Restoration, which is a, basically a grassroots advocacy group to get the Congress to start working on the the vision of restoring the climate. And um, we also uh, started we got involved in that some of the activities. So. I started the Methane Action Organization, which uh, uh, is working to uh, to, to, to advance methane oxidation to reduce methane levels, and we can talk about that later. And um, the the, uh, the, the one of the most important ones is the Climate Restoration Safety and Governance Board. And the idea there is that if we're going to restore the climate, 
and actually get the climate back to what it was 100, 100 or 200 years ago, then we need some governance for that. And at the moment, there is no government organization designed for that. So we created a nonprofit, which is uh, setting the goals and the criteria to make sure it's done successfully. And tell us a little bit about what is climate restoration. Yeah, so climate restoration is the idea and the actions of leaving our children a climate that humans have actually survived long term. And if you listen to the news about the UN goals on climate, their goal is to try to stay below two degrees of warming. And yeah, most of us don't quite know what that means, and we're hoping it means something good. But uh, the truth is, if we meet the Paris goal of for climate, which is to get to net zero emissions by 2050, then the CO2 level on our planet is going to be higher than it's been in 5 million years. And it's 50% higher than the highest level humans ever survived long term before. And so some of us will probably survive that, but we don't know how many. And that's not the future any of us want for our kids. What we want, of course, is to get the climate back to what it was 100 or 200 years ago. And so, so climate restoration is the goal of the action to restore it, to, to give our children a climate that humans have actually survived. Okay. The Paris uh, Climate Accords reduces the carbon, but it doesn't um, – or reduces the output. Let's yeah. phrase it that way. It does not actually take us back 200 years ago. Exactly. Um, what if we? Well, well, here's the, the important uh-huh. thing: is when the, and, uh, the UN established a climate goal 30, 35 years ago, and you know, if you're old enough like me, you remember in 1990. Hopefully, a lot of you listeners are young, although who knows? <laughs> um, uh, but in 1990, if if you think about what what was the climate like in 1990? No one can answer the question because the climate was just the way the climate was. It wasn't changing. We didn't even notice it. And so in 1990, when the U.N. said our goal is to stabilize the climate, um, it was a it was a okay thing to do. It's now 35 years later, and CO2 is way above anything that the scientists, uh, myself included, uh, have evidence that humans will survive. In it, uh, our humanity will survive in any, any recognizable form. So it's just a matter of it's sort of like the slow change, the, the frog in the in the pot of water kind of a situation where when we jump in, the water was wasn't too bad, but the water is about ready to boil us. So it's time for us to jump out and change the goal. Now here's the really good news is that. I think most of your listeners have heard of ice ages, right? There have been movies about it, and, and it's fun to think about. And uh, in the last million years, our planet has had 10 ice ages. And the, uh, in each of those, in order to cool the planet, nature removes that uh, trillion tons or a thousand gigatons of CO2. And so we know that it's entirely possible to remove that much CO2 because nature's done it 10 times in in the recent past. And uh, science knows how nature did it, um, and so we can do the same thing. And the reason we don't hear uh, the science community talking about it yet is that that was not necessary to discuss in 1990. In fact, the understanding of how Nature Produces Ice Ages only came out right about 1990. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But um, this, I guess one of the big things at this point is to realize the world's changing rapidly. And what we were thinking in 1990, we need to, ch- to change our thinking because the world's very different now than it was. The 
parts per million of carbon, I believe, is 420 million parts uh, parts per million now. Yeah. Um, what do we have to go back to? Would it be the – I know you cite 350 as one thing to look at. Is that what we have to go back to in order to stabilize the planet? Or, or even take us yeah, back. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you have a, a lot, lot of lot of little questions in there. So the, the simplest answer is the level that we had, which allowed us to develop agriculture, the level we had for 10,000 years was 280. And that's probably the best goal because you know, we, we want to be able to raise our crops uh, reliably again. And um, you know, I don't know what it's like in Kansas, but here in California, the crops are all changing, and it's hard for people to know when when to plant, when to harvest, when to fertilize, and so on. Um, so 280 is the is the primary goal. The next goal is on the way down there because we're at 420 now, so we're 50 percent higher CO2 than. Uh, than our agriculture system is designed for. And the, the whole ecosystem that allows humanity to, to you know, cross all the continents, you know, uh, all that was right around 280. So we're 50% higher. And that's why life is getting a bit more difficult. 300, uh, so 280, then 300 parts per million is the highest that humans ever survived long-term. And then 350... And, and that's that's sort of the immediate goal because as parents we want to the only conscionable thing the only moral thing is to get the climate back to what humans have actually survived. Uh, anything above that is hoping, and it's basically pay, playing Russian roulette, hoping that uh, the future will be okay, and uh, hoping for the survival of our kids is simply unacceptable now. The three fifty goal. Uh, it's one that scientists came up with about 15 years ago. And they said, well, the, our e- the ecosystems that we depend on uh, will start collapsing when we get above 350 parts per million. And uh, that's the absolute maximum that we could allow uh, to, and expect our children to survive. But it's still iffy. <laughs> so uh, many people have are familiar with the uh, nonprofit called 350.org, and that's where they got their name from. It's like that's the absolute maximum. But the, the goal is 300 and below 300. And how do we get to that goal? The, um, as we've studied it and gotten involved, it's the, the sensible thing to do is what nature does because nature, is, as I said, has done this 10 times. And it's photosynthesis. It's photosynthesis in the ocean, though, not on land. Uh, remember, the ocean is about three-fourths of the area of our planet, so there's a lot more ocean than land. And most land is covered with rocks and, and ice and so on. So, um, so, so it's photosynthesis in the ocean, and that's how nature uh, pulls the CO2 out before ice ages. The amount of photosynthesis, uh, well, the, the amount of photosynthesis in the ocean uh, is in, gets increased by a significant amount by uh, produced by adding the micronutrients that's missing. And um, what's good about the ocean is that, on in contrast to land, on land when you have a tree or grass, um, when it dies, it rots and the carbon goes back into the air as, as CO2. Um, in the ocean, when the plants die and the animals that eat the plants die, they sink. And in the deep ocean, there's no, pretty much no oxygen, so they don't rot. And so the, the carbon collects in the ocean, as they call it uh, dissolved carbon. And, um, and so then the question you ask is, well, how do we do that? The, uh, the micronutrient that's missing, because you, if, you, if you travel uh, to an oceanside area, 
you know, most of us love the blue ocean, the clear blue beaches where you can see the bottom. And although it's beautiful, uh, it's not green. And green, of course, is when you have photosynthesis. The way you, the way you turn uh, areas of blue ocean green is uh, providing the missing micronutrient, which is iron. And the reason iron is a missing micronutrient is that it doesn't dissolve in water. It tends to sink. And so the only way the iron gets into the deep ocean, hundreds of miles from the shore, is with dust storms. And those come and they go. And before ice ages, for various reasons, there are more uh, of these dust storms. And so more of the ocean gets fertilized with the needed iron. And we can do the same thing. Rather than putting the iron in dust, in dust storms, we can actually get the, the proper form of iron, which is usually iron sulfate, which uh, some of your listeners probably use in their, in their farms and, P- and Peter, gardens. we need to take our first break. For those yeah. just joining us, we're talking to Peter Fikowski. He is one of the authors of a book called Climate Restoration, The Only Future That Will Sustain the Human Race. We'll be back. Support for KKFI by City Year Kansas City. As an education equity nonprofit, City Year works inside Kansas City Public Schools, supporting students emotionally and academically so that they can thrive inside and outside of the classroom. To learn more about City Year's service and open positions, visit cityyear.org. Tune in to Lynx Mix this summer for a journey through the past. We're going to start on May 30th with the year 1961 and then move forward one year every week for the whole summer long. Get to hear some of that great music from yesteryear. That's Lynx Mix, Tuesdays from 10 a.m. until noon, right here on 90.1 FM, KKFI. It's time now for your good news for a good planet, the Happiness Museum. Is being happy an art or a science? In Copenhagen, Denmark, the Happiness Research Institute is dedicated to finding out. In 2020, in the midst of a global pandemic, they opened the Happiness Museum. Its mission is to explore why some people and societies are happier than others. There are eight rooms in the museum, including a happiness lab, which studies things like the anatomy of a smile and the physical aspects of joy. A map room displays the global geography of happiness, highlighting the happiest nations, of which Denmark, Finland, and Paraguay top the list. There are also artifacts of happiness from around the world, which include, among other things, a badminton racket and an inhaler, proving just how differently our happiness definitions can be. There's a history room showing how the concept of happiness has evolved over thousands of years, including an exploration into the future of happiness. Interactive exhibits and questionnaires encourage visitors to delve deeper to understand their own levels and origins. The premise of the museum is that people tend to look for happiness in all the wrong places. So tell me, what does happiness mean to you? And this is Mandy from goodnewsgoodplanet.com. Okay, we are back here on Eco Radio. We are talking with Peter Fikowski, one of the authors of a book on climate restoration. Okay, Peter, we would talk about things that we would need to do to accomplish going back 200 years. Um, One question that I think a lot of people are going to have is how realistic is any of this if the current population trends continue? Yes, 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 yes. Well, uh, let me answer that in two two steps. So uh, the first step is how realistic is it to get the CO2 back? And we want to get the CO2 back to safe levels by 2050, about, uh, about 27 years from now. Uh, and the answer is actually it's quite realistic. Uh, I'm actually working on a paper right now uh, that showing that after the Mount Pinatubo eruption in 1991, nature removed uh, two and a half parts per million of CO2, uh, uh, 22 gigatons in just that year, 
because there was iron in the dust from that, that the volcanic eruption. So uh, the cost of doing this is really very low. It's going to be uh, much less than a billion dollars a year total for the whole planet. So funding it's not going to be much of an issue. The, the main issue is changing our mindset so that we're actually thinking about restoring the climate rather than avoiding the worst aspect of climate change, which is you want to do. But uh, you know, if, you, if, you know, if you raise kids, you know, you don't want to say, don't get an F. You want to say, how about, we, how about you get an A on, the, on this course? Much more effective for them to plan what they want rather than avoid what they don't. And the same is true for us adults. So it's actually very feasible. And uh, yeah, the book is important. Uh, thank you for the interview. The, your listeners are, listeners are important. Then the second part you asked is, well, um, the population it has been, for our planet has been increasing. And uh, it's now 10 times higher than the population was for very stable for the 10,000 years after the last ice age, when, and during which we had been, in a, had been in a good balance with uh, nature, with our ecosystems, without destroying too much of them at all. But over the last 100 years, of course, we've been chopping down forests and extinction rates have been skyrocketing. Because we have 10 times more people, I think it's about 90% of all uh, old mammal mass is either humans or in our agriculture. So you know, we just dominated the planet. So what do we do about that? Is um, not surprising. You know, it sounds horrendous. Like what do we do? The answer is, um, if you look scientifically, uh, we want to get back to the population we had about 100 years ago. And the birth rates everywhere are falling. And so the, uh, by the end of the century, almost everyone alive now will have died natural death. And um, it's all about the birth rate. And the birth rates are all heading in the right direction. And it, just like the climate, where the important thing is to focus on what we want, which is to restore the climate, uh, we're just uh, beginning to succeed in getting the UN and other organizations to focus on what we want on population, which is a sustainable population. And so a birth rate similar to what Italy has, um, actually a little higher now than Italy has because their birth rate's been falling more, but a birth rate of about an average of one or two kids per, per woman is enough by the end of the century to get us back to a sustainable population. And we can definitely do that. We just have to talk about it, make it clear that's our goal, and young families will usually decide to do what's socially beneficial. Okay. I had on, and his name escapes me now because this was three or four, maybe five years ago. I had a guest that was kind of specialized in population issues, and he said that we actually would have to not to stop population growth, but to stabilize the planet, we have to go back and cut the population by approximately 50%. Is that something right. you don't think we need to do that extreme? or? Oh, it, it, that's, a, that's a great question. No one asked it that way. It's a, I'm going to give you an odd answer. Um, the good news is as I said, all we need to do is continue our birth rate trends. So in the U.S., we're at 1.6 on average, 1.6 or 1.7 children per woman. And it's at, uh, and that'll keep on going down for a while. If we let it go down for a few more years to 1.3, um, and the rest of the world averages the same, then uh, that'll take us right there with just a reduced birth rate. Now, that's the good news. And then the shocking thing is that that final, that sustainable level that most experts agree that it's definitely sustainable is actually about a quarter of the population today. But we can get there just by the, the smaller families over the next 70 years. All right. The... So on, the one, on the one hand, the, the, the cutting it by, by four is really scary. On the other hand, it's, you, you just do it by... <laughs> By having small families, uh, the, the 
if you if you keep in mind the time factor and realize that most of us will have died by then naturally, that it, it works out uh, quite friendly. Go ahead. And what, when you talk about nature took care of part of this during the ice ages, um, the CO2, part of it you mentioned is through se- the ocean sequestered the carbon in the air? Yes. Would that be a similar process if we find ways to enhance carbon storage? Yes and no. Uh, in theory, yes. In theory, we can um, expand these new direct air capture and other kinds of carbon storage um, methods. Uh, the, the problem is it's about 30,000 times more expensive than doing it in the ocean. And 30,000 times is huge. And so in order to do the carbon storage that people talk about these days, it would require about half of the global GDP. That means that, that half of all productivity on the planet would be focused to that. Whereas if we just do it in the ocean the way nature does it, then uh, it comes out to, I think, a millionth of the global GDP, which is uh, no big deal. It comes out to, uh, I figured this out, I think it's like uh, uh, 20 cents a year per person or five cents a year per person to do it in the ocean the way nature does it. Right. So the way we're doing it in the ocean, what what you do is um, uh, it, it, it doesn't need much iron. Uh, the, over the billions of years of our planet, nature has learned how to use that, the iron in the ocean really efficiently, and so uh, the amount of iron needed is about five million dollars a year for the whole planet, just in the right places in the right time. And uh, then you, you just distribute the iron dust from, from ships in the right places in the right time. And I really said all of that comes out to maybe $100 million a year, somewhere in that area. The, that is, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay. The um, dust, volcanic dust and dust storms and stuff that has been mentioned as one thing that was it helped to remove carbon. Yeah. Isn't that, though, doesn't that have the side effect of creating medical problems? Because with dust storms, you, you've got thousands, if not millions, of asthmatics mm. who are not going to do too well when there's dust storms. Right, right. Yes, that's right. And so uh, they, you don't just, you, you distribute it. Uh, what they do is they distribute the very fine uh, iron dust. They, they just uh, dilute it in the water. They just mix it straight into the water, so it's not done as dust storms. So they're simulating the dust accumulation on the ocean, and but it, it, the amount is unbelievably low. Um, if you imagine sweeping your front porch, you probably get you know, several cups, you know, a cup of uh, uh, dust every time you sweep your front porch. Um, uh, this would be about one, uh, less than a thousandth of that. So about a hundredth of a teaspoon per square yard is how much is needed. So it's an insanely low amount of iron. Okay. We've, so we've talked about the carbon problem. Let's talk some about methane and how do we get that down. And if you have to focus primarily on one or the other, which one would your main focus be on? Ooh, that's a great question. So um, if I had to focus on just one, I would actually focus on the methane. And But that's because I know that we can that we're on the way to dealing with the carbon. The methane, the, the problem with methane, it's not, in a sense, not a big problem. It's about a, a 
third of all the global warming is from methane. And the nice thing about methane is it naturally oxidizes. Methane is the is what the gas that comes out of your your uh, that you use in your gas stove and in your furnace, and it burns. Um, it's hard to light if you you know <laughs> if you're our age, you remember trying to light your stove with a match, and it's hard to light compared to, say, a cigarette lighter. Um, but it does oxidize in the atmosphere slowly. And the method that we that we're, we're developing, uh, uh, we call it enhanced atmospheric methane oxidation. So it just doubles the amount of natural oxidation of methane in the atmosphere. And um, the reason it's important is yeah, partly because if you do that, then we can actually bring global warming back to what it was um, in 1990 or 2000. And we can do that by the year 2030. So we could actually save a lot of lives, save a lot of property, save a lot of species, um, and so on. Um, but, and that's because the methane is a there is a hundred times more uh, potent greenhouse gas than CO2 is. Now, the Peter, we, really, Peter, we do ahead. need to take our second break. For those just joining us, we're talking to Peter Fikowski, who is one of the authors of a book called Climate Restoration, The Only Future That Will Sustain the Human Race. We'll be back in a few minutes. KKFI is hiring. We are now accepting applications for a bookkeeper, office, and administrator position at KKFI's offices at 39th and Main in Midtown Kansas City. This is a full-time, 32 hours per week position that is responsible for supporting the administrative and financial needs of our growing organization. For more details, including required skills and how to apply, please go online to kkfi.org forward slash jobs. July 10 is the deadline for Jackson County homeowners to appeal reassessments. Some homeowners have seen their assessments double, reportedly forcing some to sell. Jackson County has an automated online appeal filing system. If you cannot find that, email Board of Equalization at jacksongov.org or call 816-881-3309. This message is a public service of KKFI. Here's a calendar for the week of June 26th. There's volunteer opportunities to consider this summer. Here are their websites, aftertheharvestkc.org, bridgingthegap.org, cultivatekc.org, deeproots.org, heartlandconservationalliance.org, kcfarmschool.org, kcparks.org, and powellgardens.org. You can learn where to eat local food this summer at kchealthykids.org. Get ready for monarch butterflies. Citizen scientist opportunities are available at monarchwatch.org. Wednesday, June 28th at 6 p.m., there's a workshop for winning a better future for all, a virtual event hosted by the Missouri chapter of the Sierra Club. At this virtual event, you can learn more about the landmark investments to tackle climate change, which passed last year through the Inflation Reduction Act. For more information, contact Billy Davies at William.Davies at SierraClub.org or dial him at 847-636-3642 on how to register. Thursday, June 29th, 2 p.m., there's a webinar, Gardening with Kids. This is hosted by Green America and the Climate Victory Gardens Project. You can learn simple garden-centered tips, tricks, and habits that will sow the seeds of a lifelong love of nature in your child. Please find more information at greenabilitymagazine.com. Thursday, June 29th, 6 p.m., 
Basics of Fishing at the Parma Woods Shooting Range, 15900 Northwest River Road in Parkville, Missouri. Are you new to fishing? Haven't gone in years, but the kids keep asking to go? You can join Missouri Department of Conservation to learn the scoop on fishing. All registrants must be eight years old or older. To register, visit mdc.mo.gov. Stay involved. Check your local events for environmental issues. All these links and more information can be found on the Eco Radio KC Facebook page. My name is Terry. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. Okay, thank you for staying with us. This is Craig Lubo. My guest is Peter Fikowski. He's the author of Climate Restoration, The Only Future That Will Sustain the Human Race. And, Peter, was there more that you wanted to say about the methane? Yeah. So one of the uh, aspects of methane, and the reason I got interested in it, once I realized we had the methods to get CO2 back to safe levels by 2050, uh, it turns out that <clears throat> with the melting permafrost in the Arctic, the, uh, there's a risk of what they call a methane burst. And the last time that happened uh, was about 50 million years ago, and about a third of the species on our planet went extinct. So, so we want to avoid it. It turns out that, the, uh, of course, the permafrost is beginning to melt rapidly, uh, a uh, burst is beginning, but we don't think it'll be big, but we don't know. Uh, the, the, the Earth is very complex. It turns out that this methane oxidation method, this enhanced methane oxidation, <clears throat> could also protect us from a methane burst. So if the burst does happen and threatens to uh, rapidly heat the climate, and it's that rapid heating that, that uh, ecosystems can't, can't uh, tolerate well. The slow heating, the, the species can move north to cooler areas, to, to, to cooler uh, latitudes. Rapid heating, they can't do that. But with the methane oxidation, we can actually oxidize the, the methane before uh, a catastrophic uh, temperature spike happens. So it's very exciting that we can handle both. Uh, we can get the CO2 down. Um, we can reduce the, reduce the methane rapidly because it, it oxidizes so quickly, and we can all, and, and cool the planet quickly, and then we can also ensure uh, uh, our, our children against the threat of a methane burst. So that's why I'm very optimistic. We have everything we need. The costs are, are not very bad. Um, uh, they're totally less than two billion or about two billion dollars a year. And we're starting a, um, uh, the next month, we're working on starting a, uh, a grandparents fund, grandparents climate restoration fund. So uh, uh, I don't know how we'll publicize it yet, but um, uh, it'll, it'll be uh, grand. It, yeah, you yeah, just have to keep your eyes open for it because we, we even have, haven't settled on the exact name yet. But it'll be an opportunity. It'll be a way that people who are concerned about their grandkids, which is pretty much everyone, can subscribe and put in uh, $10 a month or $100 a month, or you know, if you're a millionaire, put in $1,000 a month uh, to uh, fund these projects. Because the, the projects, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. The, the projects are hard to fund because the government doesn't have an obligation to our grandchildren. They don't vote. They don't pay taxes. They don't uh, lobby. And so the government can't really justify spending money that's just going to benefit grandchildren. On the other hand, grandparents, like myself, I have, uh, I have a, a, a two-and-a-half-year-old and two one-and-a-half-year-old grandkids who are adorable, as you can imagine. Um, we'll, we'll put most of our fortune into taking care of the grandkids. So we're designing that funding mechanism now. And what about other sources of methane? I understand that the methane burst would be if the permafrost melts around the yeah. Arctic. Um, but I know there's an issue of methane from landfills. 
what percentage of methane comes from landfills and what can be done about that? Yeah, so uh, I don't remember the exact number for landfills. It's about oh, 8% or so comes from landfills. About 20% comes from cattle and uh, other livestock. Uh, um, so you know, we, we, there are things we can do about landfills and livestock and stuff like that. Uh, of course, um, where people are doing fracking to get oil and natural gas, uh, they can improve the, their operations. But uh, those are very difficult and expensive. They're worth doing, but they, they, they don't scale to the level that we need. You know, what, uh, the only way to actually really save, our, save, save the planet for our grandkids is to, is to do what nature does, which is um, ha- have a, 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 these uh, uh, short-lived chemicals in the air, which will oxidize the methane. Uh, they're usually activated by sunlight. Um, so that, that's why we're promoting that. It's, it's a new idea. So uh, you don't find it in the books. It's hard to find it even on the Internet at this point. Uh, we've been doing tests here in Silicon Valley and getting good results, and we're hoping to start uh, scaling things up in the next year or two, in large part because we don't know how soon, if a methane burst were to come out of the Arctic, it comes out of the, under the shallow ocean. We call it the continental shelf in the, in the Arctic Ocean. And once the warm water, the water up there used to be 32 degrees, so, uh, zero Celsius, and uh, it's now 50 degrees, so it's now 10 degrees Celsius uh, in the summertime. And once the ice the barrier breaks, the warm water can rush in, melt more, melt more of the ice, and let more of the methane out. And so uh, there's good reason to think it won't be bad, but that, that's, that's uh, unnerving, <laughs> given that, as I said, last time it happened, the last time our planet lost the uh, Arctic ice, We've lost 85 percent of it already. The last time that happened, there was a methane burst that killed a third of our species. So, uh, yeah, but, you know, so we're going to protect our grandkids this way. Did I understand you right? the The last methane burst was 50 million years ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's fairly infrequent. Are we yeah. are we being too alarmist about that possibility then, if it's so infrequent, or is there a reason uh, to believe that we're on the verge of a fifty million methane burst year methane well, that's a, burst? That's a great question. Um, uh, if it were uh, difficult to deal with, I would say let's worry about other things. It turns out that if it costs about a billion dollars a year and, uh, to protect ourselves, which is was what the the scale up plans uh, say, then um, uh, by doing the methane the enhanced methane oxidation, we'll actually save insurance companies about fifty mil fifty billion dollars a year. And if they wanted to pay for it, it would cost them $1 billion. So it's a really high return on investment uh, where we decide to do it. So since it's, it, it actually saves us a lot of money in the short term, it's, it's worth doing. Um, but the other thing is that the 50 million years ago, uh, it, you know, the, the, the key part is it's when the Arctic sea ice melts. And the last time our planet lost a million years worth of Arctic sea ice was 50 million years ago. And now uh, it'll be uh, about 10 more years when uh, we'll have lost the rest of the Arctic sea ice, the summer sea ice. And at that point, uh, we don't want to find out the hard way that the, that the history repeats itself. Okay. Let's move um, to the health impacts if we continue doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, well, I, I don't want to talk. Well, 
uh, to, to, if we continue what we're doing, um, you know, we, we're in uncharted territory. We're, as I said, CO2 levels are 50% higher than humans have ever survived long term. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think you see there in Kansas City, temperatures are increasing. Um, you, we read in the news about places where they're getting 120, 130 degree temperatures in the summertime. And it's getting, you know, and that's a point where humans don't survive outdoors. And not everyone can have air conditioners. And so we're seeing more and more heat deaths um, all over the world. And uh, 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 you know, the thing that worries me the most are, are the extinctions. There's the, the various animals and plants that are going extinct just because the, the climate is changing so fast and uh, because our population is so much higher than, than it ever was. Um, so uh, yeah, we're, 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 dot, we're taking over so much of nature's uh, ecosystems. So it, it, uh, I like to tell people, I, I think that Bill Gates' kids will be okay. They'll find the right places to live where it's not too hot. Uh, they'll go farther north enough to, to do okay. But um, for humanity as a whole, we really want a beautiful, lush nature. And so it's important that we restore the climate so that we can restore the ecosystem that allowed us to get where we are and that we just love because they're so beautiful. I always tell people that I belong at the North Pole because I don't like heat at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm comfortable when it's about 30 degrees outside. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. There you go. <laughs> uh, I, I think Kansas City is a little far south for you, isn't it? Yes. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, and before I fig before we go on with some other questions, um, I want to make sure we remember have you give your website. Yes, it's uh, my name Peter Sikowski dot com, and Sikowski is S I E K O W S K Y, and it's a dot com. And I've got uh, my book listed there, and uh, a number of. Uh, resources of white papers and briefs. So it's a good place to learn. And then you can also go to the Foundation for Climate Restoration and to either start Foundation for Climate Restoration or the letter F, the number four, and the letters CR.org. And there you can sign up and either join or start a local chapter where you'll be uh, set up and trained to work with your local government and your members of Congress and senators to ask them to, to take action. The very exciting thing that we're working on right now, in California, we submitted a climate restoration resolution. And the resolution simply says that California is committed to restoring the climate for our children, the future generations. And it asks, uh, the, it asked California, calls on California to ask the U.S. administration to also take that on, to say that the U.S. is committed to restoring a safe climate for our children, and similarly to ask the, our U.N. representatives to get that conversation started in Congress. Uh, it doesn't call for any funding, because really the, the funding is, is too low for Congress to work on, but we need we need Congress to say we're committed to that because uh, in the history of humanity, we never needed to worry about the climate for our grandkids. It was always constant until the last 30 years. So we need to create that. And so there's an opportunity for people to endorse that resolution and uh, submit similar resolutions in other states and, of course, and encourage your uh, congressmen and senators to introduce the same resolution into the U.S. Congress. So it's fun. Uh, what's great is I asked the California legislature to delay a couple of weeks because they said, well, we could just vote on it and it'll pass because there's no one opposing restoring the climate. I said, well, hold on. I want to give some of our activists an opportunity to send in an endorsement and then discover that the bill actually passed. Because if you've been 
if any of your listeners have uh, asked for climate legislation, most of the time, like almost all the time, it fails. So it's really great to have some climate legislation that passes. So you you can find information on that on, on my website. All right, Peter, we are out of time. Um, for those who have joined us since last break, we are talking to Peter Fikowski, the author of Climate Restoration. Um, the interview will be on our website as a podcast later. And so thank you, Peter. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Did you know your business or organization could be sponsoring this episode of Eco Radio KC? Learn more at kkfi.org marketing. Thanks for listening to KKFI. We are now adding new content to our social media sites every day, so be sure to like and follow your community radio station on social media at KKFI 901 FM. Thanks for supporting this community radio station since 1988. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. For decades, the amount of cropland in the U.S. was shrinking as farmers converted more land into pastures, grasslands, or other natural areas. As their practices became more efficient, farmers needed less space so they could set aside some land to benefit the environment. But in the mid-2000s, that trend reversed and cropland began expanding. Things like pasture land or conservation grasslands being plowed up and going back into production really made us look closer at this and ask what's driving these changes. That's Tyler Lark of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He says this reversal was driven in part by the Renewable Fuel Standard, a federal program that requires biofuels to be blended into fuel. That mandate prompted farmers to grow more corn for corn-based ethanol. So many farmers plowed up grasslands, releasing carbon from the soil. And they applied fertilizer, which also emits global warming pollution. We saw that the overall emissions associated with those land use changes were quite sizable and in many cases overshadowed some of the potential savings that corn ethanol offered relative to gasoline. So he says the research underscores the need to scale up other, less carbon-intensive sources of biofuels. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. My name is Darnell. At the end of our hour, here's some environmental news for the week of June 26, 2023. Democracy Now! reports. The Supreme Court has ruled against the Navajo Nation over claims the federal government has failed in its duty to address the tribe's water rights. Writing for the majority in Thursday's 5-4 ruling, Justice Brett Kavanaugh ruled that the 1863 treaty that established the Navajo Reservation said nothing about an affirmative duty for the United States to secure water. wrote that the government has a duty to properly manage the water it holds for the tribe. Thousands of Navajo Nation members lack access to running water in their homes even though the Colorado River runs along the northwestern border of their reservation. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has approved the sale of lab-grown meat for the first time. The approval came after the Food and Drug Administration cleared cultured chicken cell material made by the company Good Meat as safe for use as human food. Proponents say lab-grown meat provides a humane option for people who wish to consume meat but don't want to contribute to animal suffering, greenhouse gas emissions, and other environmental damage caused by factory farming. Heat records were shattered in Texas and Mexico as a massive heat dome remained over the region. Temperatures reached 115 degrees Fahrenheit, breaking old records by 3 degrees. According to the organization Climate Central, climate change is making the extreme heat five times as likely to occur in parts of Texas. On the summer solstice, meteorologists took part in the 6th annual Show Your Stripes Day to raise awareness about the climate crisis. 
Associated Press reports a bridge that crosses the Yellowstone River in Montana collapsed on Saturday, June 24, 2020, plunging portions of a freight train carrying hazardous material into the rushing water below. The train cars were carrying hot asphalt and molten soft drinking water downstream has been shut down. EcoWatch reports, a new study by researchers from Dartmouth and Princeton have found that thanks to the IRA tax credits, for the first time ever, solar and wind components made in the U.S. are less expensive than imports. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is being sued for unlawfully approving toxic herbicide used to grow foods that contain 2,4-D, an additive ingredient used in the chemical weapon Agent Orange. The Center for Food Safety and others are suing the EPA for approving Enlist One and Enlist Duo, both of which contain 2,4-D and that are sprayed on soybean, corn, and cotton. After almost two decades of negotiation, 193 United Nations member states have adopted a landmark legally binding marine biodiversity treaty for the high seas beyond national boundaries, covering two-thirds of the Earth's oceans. Inside Climate News reports, this summer could be the first in which virtual power plants, which are networks of small batteries that work in tandem to function like power plants, are large enough to make their presence felt by helping to keep the power grid functioning during the hottest days. Utility and battery companies now have networks which thousands of participants in California, Utah, and Vermont, among other states, batteries and virtual power Power plants add capacity to the grid when electricity demands is at its highest. And most of the electricity from the virtual power plant is generated by rooftop solar. Carbon Path is a Houston-based company offering a new class of carbon credits or offsets that come from plugging oil and gas wells. Carbon Path is part of an emerging industry that pairs carbon market financing with oil field service providers to plug wells and generate carbon credits, which it then sells to corporations trying to meet emission reduction goals and individuals seeking to offset their own negative climate impacts. The new companies are promising to bring verified high-quality credits into a carbon marketplace that has been fraught with calculation errors and unresolved ethical questions. More than 120,000 orphan oil wells are documented in the United States, according to a study from the Environmental Defense Fund, but as many as 800,000 more are thought to exist. At an average price tag of $75,000 plus oil wells is not cheap. Typically, as wells get older and produce less, they are sold to ever smaller operators, and when the operators cannot afford to plug the wells, they often abandon them. In the carbon credit market, this is called leakage, meaning that the emissions are not prevented but essentially moved. There is a movement to develop custom market leakage accounting. New carbon credit companies are particular about the way their evolving businesses frame. They are not carbon avoidance and not carbon removal. They see their companies as carbon eliminating. New research published in Environmental International finds children exposed to safe levels of three EPA-monitored air pollutants show altered developmental processes and neural networks crucial to some social and cognitive functions. E&E News reports, lawmakers in 37 states have introduced legislations to punish investment funds that consider social or environmental criteria in their decisions. And 16 states have enacted laws, many with the help of fossil fuel industry funding. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. Please tune in again next week or listen to our podcast at any time. Put up a parking lot 
thank you for listening to Eco Radio KC on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio. Eco Radio is brought to you each week by a team of collaborators, including me, Craig Lugo, Terry Wilking, Brent Rysdale, Bob Grove, and Dave Mitchell. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and guests and not of KKFI and or the Midcoast Media Project. You can find our calendar and a podcast of each show on Eco Radio KC's Facebook page, as well as on our show page at kkfi.org. This is Richard Mabian, and you can send inquiries and comments to our email at kkfi.org forward slash contact or message us on our Facebook page. Up next is Fiesta Musicale, followed by Noche Magica. Our outro music is Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell. Don't it always seem to go That you don't know what you've got till it's gone This is Professor Howard Zinn. The independent, non-commercial radio station you're listening to is really important in the maintenance of democracy. Thomas Jefferson once said, an informed democracy will behave in a reasonable manner. So if you care about being informed, if you care about democracy, if you're a reasonable person, you are, of course. Please support your source for uncensored news and views and the voice of your community.